No little cinnamon gum freshens breath longer than Big Red. So kiss a little longer, laugh a little longer, stay close a little longer, longer with Big Red. That Big Red freshness that's right through it. Commitment. Now there's a word for you. So how many people in your business would you need to get if I told you you need to get 10% of them to achieve commitment to some new idea? So I'll come back to that question in just a minute, but one of the things that was a theme at this year's content marketing world was that word, commitment. So few businesses have actually committed to the change of content marketing. But interestingly, there was a study done about five years ago that tried to answer the question of what it takes for an idea to spread from one to many, to look at what it takes for a minority opinion to become the majority belief. Apparently, the answer is 10%. The researchers found that once 10% of a population is committed to an idea, it's inevitable that will eventually become the prevailing opinion of the entire group. So could you commit to committing 10%? Even that seems hard, right? So we marketers come by our inability to commit fairly honestly. You know, the only place you're going to find a marketer truly committed is in a mental hospital. I'll just let that one sit there for a second. But jokes aside, one of the reasons is that we're paid to constantly come up with new ideas. Our job is to constantly iterate new ideas and new ways of going to market. But at some point, we actually need to commit to those ideas and really dig in. Now, to be clear, there's a difference between commitment and control. Control says, this is how we're going to do things here. Commitment says, this is what we're committed to. Let's be flexible and constantly adapt to how we get there. And that's the theme of our show today. Commitment, control, and the importance of knowing the difference. Because in the immortal words of the Bee Gees, we're living in a world of fools, breaking us down, when they should all just let us be. How deep is your love? And now it's time for me to commit to getting our show underway. You ready for our way or the highway? Then let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 149 of PR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, September 19th, 2016. And with me, as always, is my friend, my co host, my colleague, and the most committed man in content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Darn right, baby. I'm all, I'm all <laughs> the way. All in. I'm all in. As we've, as there's been what like a thousand blog posts saying, Joe Polizzi is all in. 
I know. So I'm, we have I'm to loving that in. so much. I'm loving that so much. The all in. Did you see the one that said there was a gasp in the audience when Joe said, "Are you all in?" <laughs> Are you? No, I did not there see is. that. <laughs> I don't think there was really a gasp, but it was a great was dramatic, a, uh, a, drama, a dramatization, if you will, of the uh, of the audience's reaction. Well, I do owe that to you. I mean, did, did we talk about? I don't even know if we talked. We about did. It on we the did podcast. talk about it a little bit on last week's episode when, when I was we were stuck. Doing the recap. I was stuck, and and then you helped me find my way, and it was all about commitment, and we right. brought it home strong. So that's right. And another thing about commitment, it gets me into trouble. I'm committed to the Cleveland Browns, at least season tickets. That's not working <laughs> out as well as content marketing world. That's what you. Mind you. That's what you call committed, my friend. I, that li- is. Li- I kid you not. I just turned on the NFL Network just to just for five minutes, just to take a break about an right. hour ago, and right. then it comes up. Oh, the Cleveland Browns are announcing their third starting quarterback of the year. Nice, Cody. Game Kessler. three, by the way, for those of you who are aren't following at home, that's we're in game number three, and they're starting their third number three quarterback. Are you kidding me? That means that realistically, we could have five or six quarterbacks this year. That would be mm-hmm. awesome. That would be that would actually be something worth watching is to see how many quarterbacks the Browns could go through. I think since Aaron Rodgers became a quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, I believe we've had something like twenty five. <laughs> they've had one. That's nice. We've had twenty five. They've been, they've won a Super Bowl, been to the playoffs almost every year. Yes. Silence on our side. Yeah. I, but yeah your well, Cowboys won, so that's they did. Something. They did indeed. They did indeed. Yes, it was a must win for them, and they and they and they pulled it out. So uh, yeah, I was a super happy guy on Sunday. So it's going to be odd because this year you and I are going to the Browns Cowboys game. It's going to be great. Yeah, and I, can't I don't wait really know who to root that. for. I'm going to yeah. just be watching your reaction, just like <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly, like a father proud of his son. Like, Aww. oh, this is wonderful that you can watch your team destroy my team. <laughs> In person. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, I mean, you never know who what Cowboys are going to show up on any given Sunday. So uh, maybe Brian Seip will come out of retirement. <laughs> there you go. Kozar, maybe quarterback we'll number chance. nine. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, what else, is anything else going on, or should we just get to the news? We what, should what just move do? right on to Let's the news because number one forty nine. I'm yeah, exactly. I'm psyched. I'm already next ready week for the, is one fifty. The big one five zero. I know. Yeah. I'm ready for next week. I was like. I thought this week was one five zero, and then it's the next week. So now I'm like, oh, okay. One hundred and fifty weeks. I mean, you talk about commitment. We have not missed one. We have not missed one week. One hundred and fifty weeks. One. That's amazing. Like you haven't been seeing anybody else. I haven't been I, seeing anybody else. It's all, <laughs> <laughs> we're all in. <laughs> and that's right. our cue to move on to yes, the news. Yes, exactly. What, so our first story, folks, comes to us courtesy of Contently, um, the wonderful blog that they put together. And But it has nothing to do with uh, Contently, of course. This is the headline is, Adblock is absolutely positively not launching an ad network, but yes, they are. Uh, sorry, not sorry. Okay, that headline might have been mine, but the headline that they wrote was... <laughs> Um, close to that. The article opens up by saying, yesterday, Adblock Plus announced it was launching an ad network called the Acceptable Ad Exchange. The Wall Street Journal reported that Adblock Plus has partnered with Google, AppNexus, and ComboTag on the network, and that they'd all split the revenue. The response from some in the publishing world has swift, angry, and confused. 
How was the world's largest ad blocker launching an ad network? And why were advertising giants like Google and AppNexus working with it? Story only gets weirder as Google and AppNexus deny any involvement. AppNexus went as far to say that it would absolutely not be working with AdBlock Plus. And the uh, article then goes on to explain what the whole thing is. And this, to me, is a fascinating story to watch from the sidelines. What, what say you? Well, I, you know, I read this a couple times because I wanted to make sure. They're, they're saying... The CEO of Adblock Plus is saying, this is nothing new. This is just a white, in essence, a whitelist program. Uh, and, and from what I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm trying to figure out their revenue model. It looks like almost an affiliate program for large publish. I mean, like, how do they make their money off of this thing? They're, they're, not, they're not creating an ad network. They're creating an approved uh, directory, let's say, of publishers approved publishers and those approved publishers get into their system and those ads will be shown through ad blo- like and then they won't be blocked isn't That's that correct. right That's and then exactly right. and then for and then those large publishers which they're saying publishers but i think they mean advertisers don't they they're not just saying publishers are they i mean cuz they're cuz when they say the publishers submit the ad but the the publishers submitting the ad that that's the advertisers work that's the marketing well, side. The way I understand it is that the advertiser will has basically what they're doing is they're layering over advertising that they will sell, and whether you call that whitelisted or whatever, it's going to go through their network, and that content, those ads, will appear if you utilize AdBlocker on whatever publisher, and so they would also then go to the publisher and say, "Hey, listen." Of your advertisers, X, Y, and Z is a quote-unquote white-listed thing. If you want to pay us a little hostage money, we'll let those ads go through. So the users of Adblock have got to be just up in arms about this because basically what this means is is that where they used to see nothing, now they're going to see some form of ad, quote-unquote, as white-listed as whatever it may be. To me, this goes back... We've talked about this maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 shows ago. To me, the, the interesting thing here is why publishers aren't doing this themselves. In other words... We talked about a long time ago, I think it was even we used the example of the New York Times where they were saying, basically, if you come in with Adblocker, you're not going to see any content. You know, it basically says, hey, listen, you need to turn off Adblocker, yeah. you're not going to see any content. Exactly. And what I had to suggested the was yeah. that they basically use that information to serve them a different experience. You know, a content-filled experience that could be sponsored, native advertising, whatever, basically give them a different experience based on the fact that they're Adblock users. I don't know why publishers don't sort yes, of disintermediate do. the disintermediator. You, you know why? Because the the advertisers that will pay or the media buyers, whoever, that will pay the most are the worst ads. They're the video role. They're the really <laughs> intrusive. Right. They're the ones that that's because they don't want to stop that. So they're never going to do that. So that's why Ad Adblock Plus actually has a business model because the publishers will never self-regulate. Right? Well, they don't have to self-regulate. All they got to do is, you know, so the ones that are getting their milkshake drunk, to use that metaphor, is I think should come up with some, you know, alternative means of serving up content to those who are using the Adblock or you know any kind of ad block, not just this particular one, but any kind of ad block solution. Give you know monetize the content in a different way 
and get your different you know, experience, and whether it's yeah. a, whether it's a degraded experience or an optimal experience and just sort of a business decision. But it, it strikes me that there's a way to do this where you start to dissuade, you commit to the long game here to borrow the, from the sh- theme of the show. You commit to the long game here to say, listen, this ad block thing is a passing fad. If we can evolve the content to such a degree that people want to actually see what we have, regardless of whether they have ad block or not, if you know if they don't have ad block, they see ads and yay for them. They want to see ads, so there you go. But this other experience for those who use ad block is from sponsored content, so you're not going to get investigative journalism or you're not going to get some section of the paper or whatever it is. It's an alternative experience. Well, now the reason for ad- having ad block, if I'm a publisher, goes away. That's true. But they're not. But you're right. Maybe this we're is we're in a temporary environment. But right now, the if if you look at okay, what does AdBlock Plus define as a bad ad? It's no video, no pop up, no intrusive, and that's the stuff that pays a lot. So we're in that sure. zone of well, we really don't want to do that. What I did love about the CEO from AdBlock Plus, what he said, what what he envisions is an environment that's not devoid of advertising. It's just li- I love it. Limited inventory. It's like don't make all this these this inventory available. Limit the inventory, and then it sounds like what this guy wants as advertising is basically text links. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It's almost going back to the days of of Yahoo nineteen ninety seven ninety eight. Almost. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, in the next, you know, the 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 next generation of that is okay. Well, how much text, right? I mean, because at a certain point, you know, this becomes it, it, this becomes a war, right? This becomes a a war of attrition between the publishers and the ad block and the consumer to say. What are we? What do we want to see? And 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 what are we? What are we willing to install software so that we don't see? Because you know, if every let's say everybody went to text ads for a minute there, well then okay, then it's then then there is no block. Then there's no reason for ad block at all because if if all of a sudden they discover that text ads are converting better, et cetera, et cetera, well now all of a sudden none of those ads. In other words, if no ads are blocked, there's no reason to have ad block. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there's, there has to be bad in order for ad block to have a purpose to exist. But they, they probably need to change their name because they're really not ad block plus. They're horrible ad block plus. Right. Well, and you know, horrible so, so, in the eye of the beholder though. Well, so. but what, for what this guy said, because even if you read the article here, it's saying, no, no, we want just good ads to be made. And that's why we're here to make good ads, but they're not going to do it themselves. So we're going to have to go out there and lead this revolution to do that. Right. Well, that's a great marketing pitch. And I, I totally get why they're doing that, but it's not true. I mean, it's, 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 you know, that's, that's, that's the classic marketing isn't in the business of truth. They're, they are truly trying to create a narrative and maybe successfully that, but, but it's, but it's, you know, well, I didn't realize that's how they made money about this. Oh, I'm going to, cause the, it goes through the whole thing where the big publishers pay the freight for Adbot plus, like they're the ones that have to pay to get these accepted ads through or whatever the case. I didn't realize that that was a thing. Yeah. I thought that they were like a nonprofit. 
Oh no, 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 <laughs> no, no. They no, make no. this article they're makes that quite clear. Yeah, exactly. They make this very, very clear that they're in it for revenue. Yeah, and he exactly. says, "No, we have to be because that's the only way that that bad ads will be blocked from that, the web. And this horrible their, thing their, will go their away." Their vision. I, I, I see. I see pictures of somebody holding a flag on top of a hill, and the flag says, "Good ads here." <laughs> Uh, they right. should ju- they should still change their name. That's- they could they well and will. I mean, this is I mean this you know if it goes if the narrative goes the way they want it to go, this is the classic you know Netflix. You go, why are they called Netflix when they're actually in the business of sending you DVDs? Well, it was never about sending you DVDs. That was always going to be a temporary business for them. They're going to merge into you know d- delivering you movies on the internet. They just had to wait for the technology to catch up, and now they're the biggest thing in Hollywood. And so this is the exact same story, right? They're just they're just waiting for the, the waiting for the industry to catch up for them to to morph into something yeah. else. Only it's the opposite. They're going to move from ad block into something else. But to your point, what a huge opportunity for one large publisher oh, to take just, this and I say can't they could out why they it could totally happened. well they could totally limit the inventory and raise the prices. Yeah. Say, here's what we're going to do for this great experience. We're going to limit inventory down to a point where the CPMs go way up because there's only one ad or two ads or whatever the case is. And that could be the model going. I think that will be the model going forward at some point. It's not going to be Forbes, like the current Forbes.com um, environment where you see pop-up blocker or, or a pop-up overlay uh, onto uh, sure. yeah. you know, everything. It's just, it's not a good experience. I don't, I don't think that's going to stay much longer. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's going to change regardless. I'm just hoping that publishers figure this out and change it on their own and don't need another, you know, another, you know, layer in between that, you know, called ad block in order to make it happen. Cause it doesn't, it's a technology that doesn't need to exist. It just does exist in the, in the vacuum of, of, of something else to replace it. Well, there's a lot of that going around. There's a lot of products that don't need to exist. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, we could, we could fair just, enough. We could go through the whole show about that. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of media companies and publishing, they're moving on to our next story here. This one comes courtesy of CNBC. I, I wonder if we've ever done a story from maybe CNBC. one. Not very. Every time rarely. I see CNBC, I always think of that. Um, that uh, that Howard Stern movie when it was at the WNBC. <laughs> That's a great movie. By yeah, the way. I love that movie so much. <laughs> All right, so uh, AT and T wants to be a media company. Here's who they could buy. Big hat tip, by the way, here to Lisa Target or Target. Um, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her last name Maybe correctly. Maybe it's Target. Target. It could be Target. It could very well be Lisa yeah. Target. Okay. Um, big hat tip to you, Lisa. Thank you for sending over this story via the hashtag. The article opens up by saying, is AT&T trying to transform into a media and advertising company? Executives in the industry tell CNBC that there has been an extensive chatter on the topic all year, with some going so far as to say the telecom giant might make a move sooner than later. AT&T is, of course, mum about its plans and declined to comment for this story. But strategically, analysts say it makes sense, and with cash and cash equivalents of $7.2 billion, according to its Q2 earnings, such a decision is well within their capability. And so the article goes on to talk about a few things uh, 
that the company could buy. I mean, we're starting to see this as this, I mean, to me, this feels like a big duh, but you know, what did you think about this? Well, it's news. Yeah. So it's news to CNBC, but it's not news to this old marketing. So we've, right. and our of audience, course, for sure. as, yeah. well, the first question, it, the first line of this article is AT&T trying to transform into a media and advertising company. It's like, duh. Yes, <laughs> of course they are. Uh, exactly. And, and about 50 As is other Verizon, companies, by the way. Yeah, and, about 50 and, other companies at the right. same time. So, yeah, I was just trying to speculate. There is no doubt in my mind that they're they're trying to fill their pipes with a new revenue stream. Uh, and they've got all, you know, especially with AT&T buying DirecTV and then having all these oppor- all this data and the opportunities then to resell and sell that data. Um, but the article goes on to talk about the fact that they maybe they don't have the content expertise uh, <laughs> to pull that you off. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, it's funny because when I was reading this, the first company that came into my head was Vice. And then I went down and it, even, and it mentions Vice as a possible. What they said, Vice, and they said... What were the other companies that they recommended for this? Oh, Discovery uh, Communications. Discovery, yeah, Discovery Communications. Time Warner. I don't know. Time Warner, yeah, for yeah, sure. They're always in every one of these. Yeah, well, so it's like, yeah. okay, besides Time Warner, <laughs> who's the other ones that we're going to talk about? So I just think that this is just a matter of time uh, before they do this. But I think the bigger story is that it's not just going to be AT&T. It's going to be Cisco Systems. It's going to be, you know, IBM's already going that direction. I mean, it's going to be a number of companies that are looking at doing this it's just maybe it's more of a no-brainer for AT&T because they have access to this huge consumer base and they're selling services already to them and some of them already buy advertising type services so it would make sense just to expand on that well sure and then the insight that comes from all of that right you know the the sort of understanding about consumer behavior and and all of that where they can you know, it becomes, you know, I mean, Amazon has been has been busy in this space of late, you know, looking at media companies. And, um, you know, we well, we talked a little bit about this, um, I think, on the show where we wrapped up Content Marketing World, where Mitch Joel talked a little bit about this in his keynote, where he talked about the idea of Amazon buying a lot of media companies, which is not a secret, of course, but, but you know, the idea of buying networks and access becomes a leverage point into, you know, in, into selling other people other things. And th- that's really the, the, the whole, that's the whole concept of content marketing is by building an audience and having access into their needs and wants and loves and passions and inspirations and all those things, education and having a leverage into that and a opt-in relationship at that. Now it becomes so much easier to have addressable access to them so that you can sell them other things. And that's, that's Amazon in a nutshell of why they, you know, it's why they make things like Alexa. It's why they make things like the Kindle and give it away below cost. Because if I give you a Kindle and on that is my Amazon store, well, of course, what do you do? You immediately buy more stuff from my Amazon store. And, and Mm -hmm. so delivering those kinds of media oriented experiences just becomes a big no brainer for these giant infrastructure companies that are trying to, as you said, very appropriately fill their pipes full of stuff. And it also becomes, you know, the enabler of more pipes and, you know, selling more stuff to those, to those people who flow media through those pipes. And so did you, did you see that PlayStation is going to offer television? 
content? I, I'm sure they. I did not see that, but I I'm, just saw I, a commercial about it. Yeah, I just saw the you know buy get the new play. Here's what we're coming out with this TV experience, and I'm just thinking. For you know, if you're an AT and T executive, you're thinking, "Wow, we really should diversify uh, our revenue streams because there's just so much disruption going on in each of these industries." So, I mean, I would I would think that they're looking at, okay, well, what other revenue opportunities could there be? Well, there's this one, except what are we missing? Well, we're we're missing that content expertise. Yeah. So they would want a broad play, like a, a Vice could probably bring them that broad broad play. That's where you know a not really a Yahoo. AOL would have. You know, it's just interesting to see how these they're all, you know, plug and play and, and how it's gonna work out. But Yeah. And and by the way, with seven point two billion dollars in cash, you know, that's the thing these days. Media companies are cheap. You know, you can you can get media companies, you know, very, very cheaply. Well, so. I, I always I mean, how many times do I use this New York Times example? If you shine the light on New York Times as one of the most amazing media brands of all time, you could buy them for $2 billion. Right. Nobody talks about that. So they'd still have a ton of money left over, if not that they're going to buy the New York Times, but just to the point, here's maybe the most, one of the most valuable media companies on the planet. And it's jump change to an AT&T or an Apple or a Cisco Systems. So sure. I'm, just, I'm just so surprised that this hasn't happened we haven't seen more of this happening because of the fact that these corporate coffers are just full with cash, yeah, just sitting exactly. on the sidelines. And they've got to be like, well, let's put this cash to use in some way. Well, we can't do any more in the stock market. We can't throw anything more overseas. What are we going to do? Let's use it. Well, here's an option for that to happen. And that's where I think the build versus buy comes in. You could actually say, well, if you're if you're AT and T or any other enterprise out there, you're going to think, oh, okay, well, it's going to take us some time to build. We got to hire fifty journalists. We got to do this. We got to do that. That's going to really oh, let's just go buy it. Let's just save yeah. ourselves the trouble and just be done with it. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, and you know, now the interesting there's a there's one interesting wrinkle here that I'll just point out, which is a story that. I thought was a little. I almost put it into the show notes this this uh, this week, but I thought it might be a little too inside baseball for you know for uh, you know for for the crowd, which is this thing that's just taken over Hollywood here. I mean, I can tell you that it's you know there's a story in Hollywood Reporter and in Variety, and I heard a story on the local radio here, and it's how Netflix is completely there. You know, people are talking about a bubble in the content creation business in, in Hollywood because of how much Netflix is overpaying in many cases for content. And they've been on this just acquisition spree um, of all these new shows and films. Oh, wait, origi- like is this that. original content? Yeah, the original, original content. content. So think House of, Ga- uh, House of Cards and, you know, think Orange is the New Black and, and think all of these sort of, uh, what was it? Stranger yeah. Things isn't Stranger, Stranger Things, one of those Things two? and yeah, and yeah, exactly. Think so. Think all those kinds of shows. And the thing is, there's that what what Hollywood is freaking out about is is that there's absolutely zero transparency here, because of course Netflix doesn't report on ratings, and so, and apparently they don't they don't even report. You know, like there's nothing to give any indication in terms of, you know, whether a show was actually successful or whether Netflix just feels like picking it up, right? Nobody knows whether Stranger Things was actually a really successful show or not because, quite frankly, there's no ratings. It It's assumed to be successful because of the amount of social buzz that it got and, and the amount of, 
Um, and then the fact that they renewed it, but nobody really knows whether people watch that show or just read about the show or whatever. And so it's a really fascinating disruption that's going on in Hollywood right now where this lack of transparency is basically, you know, you've got Netflix saying, hey, we want to, you know, we want to hire your actors or we want to hire your director. Or we want to hire your writers to create this new show. And the agents and people who put these things together have no idea what to charge. They have no idea because there's no baseline of saying, well, this is a super successful show, so we're going to charge you three times as much. They're just sort of out there feeling their way as best they but can. But isn't, you know, you know this industry better than I do, obviously, but isn't when you're paying for a show like A Stranger Things, even though it may seem exorbitant, it's much cheaper for them to do it that way than to buy the syndication rights of some of this really expensive content? Well, that's content. exactly it. There is yeah. nothing, so there's nothing to value it at, right? Because basically what they're saying, what, what Netflix is doing is buying the whole kit and caboodle, right? They're buying all of it, exclusive. And they're saying, you know, and, and so... What the agents and actors and writers and directors want, of course, is the ability to create, you know, DVDs and merchandise and, you know, all that, you know, and the ability to put it on, uh, you know, in, in release it commercially or yeah. put it on airplanes and, you know, all that stuff where they can do alternative forms of distribution and make money from it, like in syndication. That doesn't exist anymore. They have no idea how to how to actually create those deals because they have no idea if the show is successful or not. There is no sort of it, you know in 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 television it was you had to be you know basically you had to be in in business for five years um, that was the average you know so once you were once you hit that fifth year you knew you were going to go to syndication and then you know you were you were made basically if you went to syndication because you could look at the ratings and you knew exactly how much you were going to be worth on the syndication market. And, you know, if you were a Seinfeld or a Friends or something like that, you're off to the races. But with a Stranger Things, there, there's no indication of that at all. They, they have no idea what that show is worth on any syndication market um, because there's just, quite frankly, no, you know, no transparency there. Netflix just has no interest in, and for good reason, has no interest in letting that go. It's, what was the, what's the show on um, Amazon Prime that won... The, the transgender show? Yeah, Transparent. Transparent. Yeah. So the, the one who, I think it was the the director of that show was I was watching the Emmys last night. I'm sure you, you watched the Emmys, didn't I, you? I watched some of it. It okay. just bored the hell out of well, me. She, so I could. Well, she was, she was on there basically just uh, praising Jeff Bezos uh, and Amazon because they took a chance on the show. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly. And, more, and more and more of those shows are not coming from... They, that, they probably don't know which way is because you've got web-only stuff now. You've got, like, none of it's, like, regular TV anymore. It's crazy. Oh, exactly. That's like, Well, that's exactly it. And there's no transparency because there's no ratings on Amazon or Netflix or, you know, there's nothing for them to put a baseline to the market on. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a you know... You know, if you want to hire somebody who basically was the lead actor in Transparent, you have no idea what their real value is based on Transparent, other than the fact that they won an Emmy, that which is great, but it's not it's not the old business. So it, it's yeah, I don't I'm not pitching one way or the other. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing or you know, but I what I do know is is that it's throwing the world of Hollywood here into a big you know into a big tumult. Well, good, yeah, exactly. good with all of you. <laughs> Tell them that they wouldn't last a week in Cleveland. Yeah, there you go. There you go. 
Where we're on our fifth quarterback. Yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, then. Our last uh, show or story that we're going to cover on the show here comes to us courtesy of martechadvisor.com. Um, the headline here, does the content marketing industry have a measurement problem? This is another kind of a duh, but okay. This one comes to us courtesy of Vincent Mifsud. Mifsud? Um, he's, uh, works for Scribble Live, which of course is a friend and family of the show and, and was at content marketing world, uh, this year, I believe. And the article opens up by saying with limitless metrics from which to choose some content marketers struggle to understand which elements they should be measuring and how to do it correctly. And basically the CEO at Scribble Live here sheds light on the proper way to do this and says at its best content marketing is a wonderful blend of art and a science. But on the science side of the equation, our industry is still learning. Many marketers are so deeply immersed in the content creation process that it can be hard to open their minds to the data side of things. In many cases, tapping into the data requires a a lot of different things. And he goes on to explain in this article some of the key metrics that you should be looking at. And, well, before I give my take on that, I wanted to get your take on this. What did you think about the metrics that he proposes and and what what we're talking about here? Well, I'll I'll take some words from somebody that I know that talks about this all the time. And and marketing has always had a measurement problem. Not just content marketing, right? You've said this many times on this show. Marketing has a measurement problem. It always has. Now, if you get down to content marketing, I mean, I like the fact that in this article we're talking about, look, what are you trying to do, first of all? Because that makes a big difference in what you're ultimately going to measure. But I just, I was just on an interview a couple hours ago, and they said if you had to choose one metric to look at when it comes to content marketing, what would that metric be? And I said, well, I don't know if you call this a metric, but I guess for this conversation, I would say the subscriber. The audience that you're trying to build. And if you focus, if you, if you took all this other stuff away, cause the article goes about web traffic. And of course, we cover this in our research at Content Marketing Institute, you know, engagement rate, conversion rate, all this other stuff. Well, what's the bigger issue? The bigger issue is what's the audience that we're trying to reach? Are they actually opting into our content? If they engage in our content on a regular basis, what do they do differently? What's the behavior and measure that behavior? Exactly. That's it. I mean, it. just it's simplify simple, it. Forget right. everything it's, else. Right. Now, if if the traffic and the engagement rates and the conversions they help you to tell that story, great. Then then use all that all that stuff all day long. But the really, what I want to know because it's funny because um, this article talks a little bit, and then we had the I think we had another email uh, a little bit ago just talking about well, what do you tell CMOS and CFOS? All they want to know about is behavior change. Are we doing this? Is What's the behavior change that ultimately is leading to a profitable behavior for our organization? That's all they want to know. That's right. So that's all, it, you should, that's all you should. They don't care about traffic. They don't care about engagement rates. They don't care about any of that stuff. It, this, is, this is the true, you know, this is the true challenge, right? You know, the, the, the metrics conversation is, is one where we get lost in our ability to be, to measure things and forget why we're actually measuring it in the first place. And so, you know, and so with this article in particular, you know, he goes through a few things with traffic and engagement rates and actual conversions and and stuff like that. And those are all great things. And actually he speaks to the idea of, you know, it doesn't always have to be a sale, a newsletter sign up or a content download play a valuable role in the sales funnel. And so I would agree with that. I would, I'm I'm all in on that, right? That's getting to exactly what you talk about, the subscriber being a key metric there. 
the thing that we have to realize is that with 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 measurement and with content marketing specifically, I mean, forget marketing more broadly for just a moment, but looking at content marketing specifically, it is what you just said. It is what do subscribers provide us that others don't? And if we look just at the core, you know, the core things that CFOs and CMOs care about, you know, not even CMOs. I'm not even going to put CMOs in this bucket for a second. CEOs and CFOs. The things, the two, there are two things. My business professor taught me this, like, like drilled this into my head. There are only two things that they care about. Revenue and costs. Everything else. That's it. Is it. That is it. It is that. Revenue and cost. And how much does it cost us to get the revenue? And that is it. And so if if we look at that as sort of our overriding goal in content marketing, everything should be about how is the subscriber helping us to create more revenue or save costs? And if we can create metrics or goals around those two ideas, then we're doing ourselves a great favor. I believe that content marketing can do both, and I think it can do multiple things within both of those categories you know some of them have everything to do with better leads more leads you know wider leads you know faster leads all that kind of stuff creating better opportunities creating better customers all top of the funnel stuff it can also do bottom of the funnel stuff you know create a a customer who stays longer all those things are great but it can also save cost because of knowing more about our audience, getting better effectiveness on ad spend, getting better effectiveness in, in our sales uh, organization. All those things are true. And those are the things that we should look at when we look at what are the metrics that are um, building a content marketing strategy that's successful is what are the multiple ways that it either helps us drive more revenue or save money? Well, the I, I when I do my epic con, I do two speeches now. I do a content ink you speech. Got two, two I speeches. Two. I know. I have two. Oh, wow. Don't ask me for a third one. It's going to cost you. That's no, right. like, <laughs> it. Like Browns two, quarterbacks. Exactly. I do two speeches. I do yeah. my content ink speech. Or I do my epic content marketing speech. And when I do my <laughs> epic content marketing speech, I talk about why are you creating the content in the first place, and I talk about sales savings or sunshine. Is you, are you driving direct sales from it? Are you saving costs from it? Or are you sun, is what we call sunshine? With Drew, Drew Davis worked with me on that. He said, use an S. And I said, well, okay, we could call it sunshine. And, he, and that's all about creating happier customers, basically current customers spending more money with you. That's another revenue line. That's back to yep. sales. So you've got those three. And the only one that I've added to that is because you and I have been working on this whole concept of uh, the the profit center idea of building an audience and then profiting directly from that audience like a media company would. And then that's direct revenue, direct revenue coming to, from your audience from, uh, from advertising or paid content opportunities, just like a media company would. Again, yep. revenue. Everything, nothing else matters, folks. That's it. That's why when and you and I have met with quite a few people who had these uh, ROI, content marketing ROI reports, and they're quite lengthy, and they take them into the CMO, and they just get ripped to shreds because they've got things like traffic on it and conversion rates and right. all those things that nobody, like somebody in an executive position doesn't want to see. All they want to see is... Hey, is that uh, is that blog we're doing? Is that uh, that generating money for us? Okay, is it not? Uh, then it's saving us costs, right? That's, that's right. <laughs> that's it. That's that right. is it, man. That's it's just it's. I totally get it's hard to do that, and you might not have the data for it. But then you have to get into those conversations where you're trying to tell that story with the data you have, the best you can. So, yeah, there you go. That's it. 
It's it's really actually quite easy. Well, speaking of easy, (laughs) speaking of easy and providing a profit, we've got an amazing sponsor to talk about. We absolutely do. Our good friends at On24 are wonderful enough to sponsor yet another episode of This Old Marketing. Robert, did you know? I think I did, did, but did I'm you, waiting, waiting to did hear Did you it. know this, that webinars have become the single most important marketing tool to generate leads? Now, they say this. I think it's very, very important. It's extremely important to drive new business with webinars. But what we found out is that a lot of companies aren't happy with the performance of their webinars. Now, <laughs> a few best practices can make the difference between a huge success and a waste of time and resources. Actually, getting to our conversation, are your webinars driving sales or saving costs? That's really all we want to know. We don't want to know anything else. That's what we want to know. On 24's 2016 webinar benchmarks report highlights data from over 12,000 webinars that will help you understand the latest trends in webinar marketing. You can watch it on demand today. They have a nice little ebook with it. Webinar talks about webinar registration, attendee benchmarks, best times of day to deliver webinars, most popular interactive tools, on-demand viewing behavior, all that kind of stuff. Download it now. You can get this uh, wonderful benchmarks report at cmi.media slash PNR149. That's cmi.media slash PNR149. And special thanks again. And man, go download it. Because if you download it, then Robert and I are going to make it to episode 150. That's right. 151 and 250. And God help us 300. (laughs) (laughs) God help Everyone listening to this. Hello, I don't know. Joe. I'm here to tell you episode number 300. Just wait I don't a know second. Why I, I have Bernie Sanders all of a sudden, but yeah, exactly. Just wait a second. I have to put my teeth in. I, I, I've, I've got to replace a hip. Hold on. <laughs> I know, and I fell. Wait, I fell again. I oh, wait a second. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Sorry, people. It's it's oh. an afternoon when we do these in the afternoons. All it, heck breaks loose. It always, it always. Wait till, wait till, wait till we do next week's. We're gonna. We were, we were talking about maybe making it a drunk show. So uh, you never know. Every time so, you say native advertising, you got to take a shot. We're gonna take a shot. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for your favorite part of the show, which is our rants and rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave that makes us feel like. We are committed to this thing forever or makes us feel like breaking up via text. So uh, let's see. What uh, what, uh, what do we got here? I think I am, um, you I've go got the first Tom. because you have so this old marketing I this week. get to go first this time. So I have a rave and then I wanted to have a little conversation with you. A conversation. About something Fireside else. chat. That's okay. Yes, exactly. I, something like that. Something that we've right. been struggling with. And uh, I'd like to get the listeners uh, input on that. But first... A rave for... <laughs> but first, before we get to first, that... first, before we get to that, and I will share an article uh, from Chicago Tribune on this because it talks about uh, Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee series, which was nominated, as you know, for an Emmy in the short-form nonfiction category. By the way, last week tonight with John Oliver won that. I saw uh, that, category, yeah. which uh, we both love. So kudos to uh, to John Oliver on that. But... Uh, the show is totally underwritten by Acura, uh, which could make it one of the first, if not, I mean, is it the first Emmy nom- nomination that you could possibly say is a content marketing example? Could you, would you say that? Is I, it possible? I, it's possible. It's possible. It's a little bit gray area there. 
but I wanted to throw out a kudos because I think we are getting to the point where you and I have had this conversation on quite a few episodes where we're going to say these winners, these nominate, uh, the, the shows nominated for Oscars, Emmys, God help us, the People's Choice Award, uh, they, <laughs> they'll be more and more uh, being funded by brands. Yeah, uh, that are sort of outside the traditional base. So I just wanted to say, even though they didn't win, uh, more to come on that one. So that's my rave. And the second, here's my, my conversation, and I, I spent some time going through this today. I was actually interviewed uh, for about diversity in at events, specifically marketing events, uh, because as you know, uh, Rand Fishkin sent out a tweet uh, during Content Marketing World that basically said. Uh, you know, Joe, great conference. I'd like to see more diversity, specifically more women at Content Marketing World. And he put out a percentage of, of the speakers. And that was a little bit incorrect. Uh, so I wanted to first correct it. But also, I, I think it's important that it's something that is really important that I wanted to talk about with you because I think we need to sort of shine a light on this. And you and I both go to a lot of events. And the sheer majority of speakers at most of these marketing events are men. Sure. Uh, it's white I, men, white men, white men. Yeah. And, and so even in the interview that I had uh, for today, it'll come out in, in about a month talking about some of this stuff. Uh, basically we need to do a better job of content marketing world, but we are doing better, but we need to do even better than we are. So here's some stats. I put, I, I put this together today. So in 2000, oh, yeah, I got some stats. 2016, from the speakers that we placed at Content Marketing World, uh, 55% were men and 45% were women, which I thought that was, by the way, our best we've ever had. Just a comparison point, 2015 Content Marketing World, we were 63% men, 37% women, which is not good. And we have we have improved upon that. So I think 55 and 45, all you can say about that is I think we've done better. Uh, and that doesn't even talk about the fact that I think we need we need to get more uh, diversity from sure. different backgrounds, different ethnicities. That's something we need to reach out for. And the only thing I wanted to bring this up with you, Robert, is first of all, I think Ram brings up a great point. I think that I think we've done a better job at this at Content Marketing World, but I think that we have a responsibility to do even more. And I guess what I'm searching for right now is what do what can we be doing? I have some ideas about what we need to do for Content Marketing World 2017 because what I really want to do is make it that, make it a mission of of CMW 17 to to talk about the, not just talk about these issues actually make it real make it happen at this event and I think because you and I are in let's say <laughs> among a lot of things that we are leadership <laughs> maybe leadership positions in the industry that yeah. we that we need to take an active role in this the as, chucklehead category yeah. yes leadership positions exactly i mean you and i are programming right now for intelligent yeah, content right. conference and we've been talking about this as an issue and of course on yeah. into as, as not an would, issue a challenge that we've gratefully accepted yes exactly and i and i i guess what i don't know and i would love to get your input on it uh i wonder if we need to do something more publicly about this like actually say that there that this is not just oh, this is something that we're focusing on, but say so this is something that's really important. Uh, because when I go to an event that is 70, 80% white men... You can feel it, right? It doesn't even... you know. It, but it's that's, like, most, that's most yeah. That's most shows I go to. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, I, I, what you, what's your take on this whole thing? I, I, well, as you know, as I told you in the in the pre-show chat that we had, this is I love that we're doing this, and I love that we're putting a spotlight on it, as it were. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff we can do. You know, I love fostering new speakers as 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 much as possible, and actually devote some of my time to to helping those that I can. Now I don't necessarily try and weight it one way or the other, but um I do have I do have I do care about this and 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 it's one of those things where wherever you can sort of make a, you know, make make a choice about something, making a choice in the right way feels better um for fostering diversity in, in those things. And it's, you know, so it's top of mind whenever we do things like program ICC or you know, when we're programming content marketing world and those kinds of things. I think the real, you know, what you're getting at and where we could really use help from the audience and from the community in general um and that's one thing I'll say. Uh, let me before I sort of suggest the thing. I, I will say this: one of the differences I think in certainly content marketing world and and evolving uh, intelligent content event as well is the is the community, the fostering of community. One of the things that I think we've been terribly successful at is fostering a sense of community in the group. There, even at you know even at almost five thousand people, it still feels like. Everybody kind of knows everybody. I mean, that's the constant feedback I get is, wow, I'm with my people, right? So yeah. the idea of a tribe or a sort of community, has that has been successful. And we've been, you know, really focused on that. And so now really fostering this idea of diversity in that community is a, is a really laudable goal, I think, for us and a good challenge. And, and, and so then getting back to the what you know, we could use sort of feedback and, and, and audience participation with this. How do we actually start to foster more, uh, you know, more diversity in these events? Broad, broadly speaking, going beyond content marketing world or intelligent content, but, you know, broadly speaking, how do we foster this? Do we have, you know, I mean, this is, there's no secret. There are plenty of articles out there that talk about, you know, women becoming speakers and, and becoming more willing to become speakers and become public facing and, and those kinds of things. And there's lots of great women out there that are helping other women really foster their careers as public speakers and as thought leaders in the, in the industry um, and, and those kinds of things. And I think shining a light on those places so that there's resources to be had would be a great thing. Um, because there are great people who are actually focused on this very topic who would love to take the mantle with this and run. And then I think, you know, you know, really looking at diversity more broadly and saying, great, now how do we actually add more color and, and, and more backgrounds to content marketing world to make it the worldwide, you know, uh, diverse event that we want it to be that really celebrates the strengths of all the backgrounds that, you know, that are out there, uh, you know, so I, I sort of stand up and applaud what you're doing and, and let's, you know, let's get to it. Yeah. So I think that what you're, what we're going to do, what you'll see in the next month, uh, I'm actually working on a blog post around this and, and I want to, I want to get some feedback from some of the community. So by the way, if you have any thoughts on this, send me a personal email at Joe at contentinstitute.com. That's Joe at contentinstitute.com or send it to this old marketing at contentinstitute.com. We'll make sure we get it. Uh, I want to get your feedback on this, but uh, the last thing that we want to do is just say, hey, this is important and we're working on it. Uh, I want to get it out there and, and and really make sure that this makes an impact in 2017. 
Yeah. Um, so we're taking it seriously. So, I mean, I want, by the way, and we'll put this in the show notes, Kathy McPhillips wrote our, our uh, VP of marketing wrote a great uh, kind of response to Rand uh, and, and ran Fishkin's tweet and just said, here's, here's some of the things and, and put in a lot of the whys. Cause I, I, there's a lot of reasons why we don't need to go through this. Um, that, that Kathy goes through. So if you want to read some, some of the whys and things happen for event producers, uh, but it's got to change. It's what's got to change as well. I mean, we can do this, uh, I think without this little bit changing, but what I'd like to see changed is that when we get submissions for content marketing world every year, 70% are white men. Right. I'd like to, I'd like to see that change. I yeah. really would. Um, right. it would, so it, but if that doesn't change, we can't make excuses. We'll still do what we need to do, uh, but that would be helpful. Let's put it yeah. that way. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, so there you go. Be, uh, that would be helpful. Helpful <laughs> would be great. Yeah. All right, my friend. So uh, you well, have fantastic. a, a well, that's rant. just you know oh, yeah. I don't I don't I, that's a that's a that's a tough one to top here because that's just a wonderful wonderful rave there. My, I also have a rave um, and want to just give a shout out to uh, Daniel Newman, who I know, and I think you do too. Um, <clears throat> he runs a blog um, and I believe it's a consultancy as well called Futurum. Um, and uh, this is where the article that we'll link to in the show notes comes from. The headline of the article is digital transformation cannot succeed without the right culture. And so the article itself is great. It's a wonderful article, goes through some best practices about culture change and transforming, uh, you know, digital transformation is a big buzzword right now going on in, 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 you know, in all circles, marketing being one of them, certainly. Um, and he talks about this idea of culture and its importance in how you actually change an organization to be digitally transformed. And so I wanted to sort of take that and riff on it a bit highly recommend the article go go uh definitely go read it because he walks through some specifics but one of the things that that has come up for me i mean this is this centers on the work that i do when we do consulting and advisory work when we do workshops which is you know it's very easy to speak about this really cool thing that we want to do called content marketing the hard part is actually the culture change and just a couple of things that I've noticed in my work that I think are important. So I'll sort of take what he did was and put it through a content marketing lens, which is one of the biggest business cases that we can make for content and content strategy um, as a sort of function in our business is that we need to think about content strategy, designing what we want in our business for humans, not for the capabilities of the tools or the contractors we have. And when we start thinking about culture, we need to start to remove the idea of content from, you know, the, the, the personal. And what I mean by that is we have to dispassionately design these models about content as an asset in our business that optimize the strengths of the company, make the weaknesses as meaningless as possible. We want to design these models and processes not on the basis of basically how things have always been done into the theme of the show. That's the idea of control, but rather a commitment on how we can actually optimize the strengths that we have as a team and an organization and how content is actually worked. So for example, why we need to ask ourselves the questions like, why are we using an agency for the coolest, most innovative content program while our best and brightest team members are working on some dull declining website duty? And if the answer, because that's the way it's always been, it's time to design a new system around that. 
The second thing I'll mention around culture is, is that this idea of, I'm, 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 I know flat is sort of the new thing, the new sort of gangham style of getting an organization together, but flat organizational structures when it comes to content is overrated in my view. It's nice that everybody's got an interest in creating content and you've got subject matter experts and all these kinds of things that want to create content and making everybody create content is sort of an interesting idea but quite frankly it can be just as big a waste of time as my wife will definitely tell you honey just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you have good taste (laughs) and so just all of that needs to be put into perspective not all content should be published and so this when we form a content team it's not simply it shouldn't just be a publishing team it's not just a publish button for the rest of the company if the team can't say no or yes with or you know or yes with some modification then it's not really responsible for content it's simply just a dam to manage the flow of content into the lake that we you know sort of manage below as a group, as a team, as a content team, we have to be able to ask ourselves if any given piece of content serves the purpose of our mission. And if it doesn't, it doesn't get published. End of story. That's the, that's the end of it. And so if content's going to have any strategic value, the culture that we have to create, the change that we have to create, is that we have to acknowledge that not everybody is equipped to create or change content. When the company is deciding when we're going to approach a legal issue, for example, we don't go, well, let's see what the marketing team thinks about that, that legal issue and see what that's all about. No, of course we don't do that. Legal experts are experts. for. We have to understand that content as a practice is just as in-depth and detailed as legal is. And if we can get the company to agree on that, those foundations as a thing, then we can start thinking, great who, what, where, and when, and what do we need to change in the business to be able to do that? Because it's that cultural challenge is really, at its core, it's making people believe things that are different. And the idea isn't to squash everybody's creativity, it's to harness everybody's creativity. You only win, uh, unless you're the Browns, by actually knowing who (laughs) your players are. So somebody has to step up and change the business around this perception around content and so it's starting with that foundation, I think, that's really important. Anyway, that's my, that was my rave. That was a rave? I don't know I if it was, sworn a, it was, it was a commentary more than anything else, yeah, I suppose. It was, it's, yeah, I always get confused because your, <laughs> your, ra- your rants turn into raves and your raves turn into rants. So it's just, right, yeah. it's just commentary. Maybe we should change the name <laughs> yeah. of this part of the show <laughs> to something else. All right. Uh, I have... A very quick but wonderful uh, this old marketing. So, oh, very nice. Yes, as I was going through uh, my old examples, uh, I have a big stack of old magazines and such. Uh, a magazine slid through the stack uh, that was very interesting <laughs> to me, and that magazine was called Walmart World, uh, produced, of course, by our friends at Walmart. As I did some uh, digging into the magazine, which, by the way, the magazine is a 68-page glossy magazine complete with co-branded advertising, I found the mission. And here's the mission. So the Walmart World program, both print and digital, fulfills the mission of engaging, inspiring, and educating Walmart associates in the things they care about. The magazine creates creates a record for years to come of the wondrous Walmart people and their stores, whether they serve... Customers in the stores, distribution centers, on the road, or in the offices. First published in 1971. Wow. Do you believe that? I know. It has always been relevant to Walmart associates everywhere. Now, 
on the site, if you go to the website and in the magazine, you'll see this quote all over the place from Sam Walton, of course, the founder of Walmart. Uh, Store associates are the real front line of Walmart. They are in touch with our customers every day. So it just talks to the point about how how their their associates are the most important part here, and that's what they're pushing with this Walmart World program. Now, first, the magazine, complete with insights, helpful and interesting for Walmart employees. Uh, What I like the best, they have content directly from employees in certain markets about how they tried something and succeeded. Uh, Really, really helpful for other employees. Uh, The site, which I'll link to in the show notes, uh, it's it's very long, actually, uh, goes into, (laughs) which I thought they should change that, but okay. Goes into even more detail on associate promotions, likes, and trends. Uh, It also has become the home for associate discussions and a login area for insurance information and other employee FAQ. So it's really an intranet, but it's it's almost a most of it's public. And then they have a portion that's login for for private. Uh, You know, Walmart is so big, obviously one of the biggest companies in the world. I think a program like this is necessary to help employees actually market help market the the bigger walmart i love that they started with the magazine now being produced for over 40 years and have evolved that into an integrated mix of print and digital so walmart world is our this old marketing example of the week yeah it's really really cool yeah i got 71 that's that's amazing isn't that something because when i got the magazine i was like is this a new initiative and of course did some Robert Rosian type research and and found that it, it has been around for over 40 years. So it really does constitute a, this old marketing example. So Very cool. Very cool. Where are you? So I, this coming week, I know for both of us, is a travel-heavy week. Where where are you going again? Uh, so Wednesday, I leave for the Social Brand Forum, and I'm delighted to say uh, that is it'll be the first time I ever go to Iowa. Wow, all right. I've never been to Iowa, so that's Nick Westergaard's event, and I'll be... Oh, tell Nick I said hi. I, I like will, that. absolutely. I've been promoting, uh, uh, speaking with uh, Jay Bears there, Ginny Dietrich, Andy Crestadina. Uh, oh, my God, it's the whole the whole fam oh, the whole, the whole, that's right. So I'm really looking forward to, to doing that, and then... Uh, as soon as that's done, I have a day off, and then I fly to uh, Helsinki in London, and I believe you have international trip coming up as well. I do, yeah. So I start my week at the end of this week in Boston, and then I go to New York, uh, and then I head to Slovenia for the POMP uh, That's forum. right. And, Great event. And, yeah, and then I'm there for a few days, and then I go back to London, and I do an event in London. Uh, and then I come home. So I have almost 10 days uh, straight on the road. So next uh, time we record our 150th episode, I will be doing so from the road. Yes, we will. We will. We're already talking about how we're going to make the 150th happen. So it'll be quite interesting. So yes, should be well, fun as always. You know, absolutely. the fall is always tricky for us to, to make this happen. But we do it. But we do it. We do it because we care. We are committed. That's right. We are committed to doing we're it. We're all in. We're all in. And that is it for this episode, number 149. For Joe Polizzi, this is Robert Rose. We are signing off. And if you like this episode, number 149, do consider leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher.com or all those places. 
where you can do such things like review. And when you review, if you review, would you review? Can you review? Let us know about the review, won't you, on hashtag this old marketing. Hashtag us up on the Twitter. We'd love to thank you personally for any reviews that you leave. And that is how much we appreciate you as a subscriber to our little show. Of course, story ideas, story ideas, all that stuff. Hashtag us up at this old marketing on Twitter. We'd love it. Um, and uh, also examples of this old marketing. We love those too. Also, if you have an email you want to send, as Joe mentioned earlier in the show about the diversity thing or just about a question in general, you can get us at thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today will be available, of course, in the show notes as we publish on Monday night and then, of course, in our show post on thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, with 150, remember, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.